thank you everyone for being here good afternoon and uh, welcome to this lunch discussion on humans of the indo-pacific and uh, my name is sunaina kumar i work with the center for new economic diplomacy at the observer research foundation and i am your moderator for this event the Indo-Pacific is home to more than half of the world's population and nearly two-thirds of the world's economy. The region faces many common challenges from climate change to conflict to combating the economic and social crises wrought by the pandemic. There is an urgent need to replace sustainable development to place it as the most important priority of the region and the path to do that possibly lies in innovative public financing models. This session builds on the Conference on Sustainable Finance in the Indo-Pacific, which took place in Paris in February this year as a collaboration between the Observer Research Foundation, the French Development Agency and the India Exim Bank, along with support from the European Union. Based on the conference, a report has been put together Reclaiming Development Pathways for Public Development Finance in the Indo-Pacific is an extremely timely document which we are releasing today. Before we begin, I would like to invite Mr. Bruno Bosley, the country director for AFT, the French Development Agency, to please come up on stage to re release the report and also to share it with our panelists. Thank you. And if we can also request you to share a few words on the report. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Minister, um, distinguished representative of government and institutions, uh, dear Observer Research uh, Foundation colleagues, and ladies and gentlemen, I'm very, very happy to be here today, of course, uh, at the Regional Dialogue for this panel, for introducing this report, which has been prepared by our Observer Research Foundation on the development agenda in the Indo-Pacific. Let me express my sincere thanks, of course, to uh, Observer Research Foundation for this collaboration, and specifically uh, my congratulations to Mir Sharma, who has uh, been uh, the one uh, uh, preparing this report and uh, working closely with us on, on, this, uh, on, this, on this one. This report is the first step uh, in defining a common uh, agenda for sustainable development in the, the Pacific. We also hope that it can contribute to, um, to a dynamic which could mobilize stakeholders uh, on the, of the region around a common vision and harmonize tools and approaches uh, to materialize, in fact, this uh, objective of uh, achieving uh, sustainable development goals uh, in the region. Let me explain in a, in a few words uh, why we have initiated this collaboration and, uh, and why we are, we are releasing this report today. The first reason for us is the necessity of a development agenda in the Indo-Pacific and the cooperation of financial institutions uh, to achieve it. Indo-Pacific is usually uh, a topic which is addressed under the strategic, the sovereignty, the security uh, aspect, and not so much under the different angle. We do believe that uh, there is a need, in fact, to, uh, to work on these challenges, uh, the different challenges in the Indo-Pacific, and in, alongside, of course, on the security agenda. The second good reason for us to, uh, to work on this topic is, of course, to how to gather uh, like-minded stakeholders around initiative which allow, in fact, to channel different finance toward more sustainability in the Indo-Pacific region. 
A comprehensive report is needed, uh, and the global, in fact, mobilization require, in fact, to have a common vision of these challenges and how, of course, to address uh, collectively these challenges. The third and last reason is that uh, we, we need, or we, we foresee the need, in fact, to create collaborations not only between different finance institutions, but also with think tanks, uh, which allow, in fact, to better identify the challenges, to bring, in fact, food for foods, and also to bring a different angle of these topics that we are usually addressing as a different institutions. Let me close this uh, uh, opening remarks with this last point, and, of course, to express my sincere thanks again to the Observer Research Foundation, our knowledge partner, for organizing this panel and, uh, and of course, for having uh, prepared this report. I look forward to hearing the reviews of the different panelists and, uh, of course, uh, I wish you, everyone, a very good panel. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you also for your support for this report. Um, please allow me to introduce our panelists now. Aditya Thakre is Minister of Tourism and Environment, the Government of Maharashtra in India. Philippe Orleange is Executive Director, International Operations at AFD France. Javier Salido Ortiz is Director General for North America, Eastern Europe, Asia and the Pacific at Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Spain. Melinda Bonin is Director Strategy at Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the United Kingdom. And Uduak Amimo is Acting Executive Director at Uriah Trust in Kenya. Thank you very much for joining us to discuss this critical topic today. Um, okay, Aditya, I would like to begin with you. Um, Mumbai is... Um, is of course very vulnerable to climate change and this is a topic which is very close to your heart. How do you think the Indo-Pacific framework can be utilized for building sustainable cities? Right, now that's actually, uh, you know, it's, it expands across the globe because, you know, the type of Indo-Pacific partnerships we've always heard about is about security, is about defense, it's about mutual cooperation in terms of, you know, supporting each other in terms of each other's sovereignty and defense. But going beyond that, I think what we need to also understand is peace and prosperity is a major part of economic progress. And peace and prosperity can be sought in two ways. One is, of course, your defense in terms of the armed forces and you know the way we cooperate with each other on one. But when we speak about environment, today I'm seeing a lot of our countries, especially in the Indo-Pacific, being extremely vulnerable to climate change. You've got mass migration, you've got people and civilizations, you've got societies being hit by weather events that were not so frequent earlier, were seen as anomalies, were seen as erratic events, and now we've got these events on a year-to-year -year basis. For example, looking at our own region in Maharashtra, we've got the Raigad region, which uh, we've got the Konkan region, which is also a huge coastal region for us. We've got mangroves, we've got hills, we've got beaches, and we've got people staying there for years and years, generations, based, you know, for whatever climatic conditions existed, staying on the hills, staying near the waters, and in the past three years, along with COVID, they've been hit by three huge storms and cyclones, they've been hit by landslides and we've had to migrate them, we've had to move them. Now this migration, this change in terms of our livelihood, this change in terms of our life cycle, or the way we live, is actually going to create a lot of disruptions within our own regions, uh, leading to disruptions within the country, uh, socio-economic disruptions in countries like ours where you have different castes, creeds, cultures coming together, disruptions in there, and that's going to create some sort of instability moving ahead. If at all we can create 
an alliance around the world, especially in the Indo-Pacific, in terms of how do we maneuver ourselves in terms of a prevention or uh, you know mitigation for climate action, and how do we move towards that? And two, building resilience, and how do you actually respond to climate disasters? I think that is something which is very crucial because many many a times we see smaller island nations, we see smaller island states, islands, or even bigger countries like us when we hit when we are hit by climate disasters. Our response is, of course, to go out there, help people. But how do you do that? What is the right way of doing it? Can we support each other? I think that is where we can all come together. Thank you for that, um, Philippe. I'd like to bring you in. Aditya just talked about how we can build alliances. I would like to know from you um, about this report. What is the essence of this report? How does it talk about building new coalitions and also on innovative public financing? for sustainable development. Um, thank you very much, uh, Sunaina. Um, the initiative, the SUFIP initiative, um, was premised on the idea that to tackle the sort of challenges that um, IDT has, has mentioned, uh, we need two things. Uh, we need to reach uh, scale, and we need, we need uh, to, to involve uh, domestic uh, public finance institutions precisely to do that. Um, and and the, the, uh, the meeting the convened 20-odd uh, institutions belonging to that category of public development banks plus a number of international actors. Um, to, to, first, it was, the purpose was to, to check whether this is um, an issue, a set of issues, whether the politics of sustainability um, can be um, an element of this Indo-Pacific agenda. And I think the response of the meeting was clearly yes. This, and, and what you've just said confirms that um, very, very clearly. Second is the issue of how then do we, do we work together? Clearly, uh, challenges such as the one that have, have been uh, mentioned um, are of interest uh, not only for the Indo-Pacific region, but for the entire uh, global community. The success or failure of the Paris Agreement uh, on greenhouse gases emission relies to a large extent to what is going to happen in this region in terms of, of greenhouse uh, emission. Uh, the, the response to challenges of um, adaptation to climate change also depends on what we'll be uh, able to do or not, or will fail to do in the Indo-Pacific. Then you need to bring to the table, um, when it comes to financing investment, a, a number of institutions, public institutions, whose uh, collective weight, whose size in terms of balance sheet, whose leveraging capacity, can mobilize uh, direct uh, public investment, can uh, crowd in um, private investment, and receive some sort of, of support uh, from international institutions. That's the logic of it. And these sort of alliances um, is something that uh, public banks have, have been good at recently. You, you've probably heard about the International Development Finance Club. Uh, grouping the 26 um, development banks, national development banks from, from 26 countries, which is largely an emerging economy club. Uh, there are four European institutions, but the majority is made of uh, public banks from Latin America, Asia, and, and Africa. And, and these banks collectively have organized the Financing Common uh, Summit um, last year and the year before. Um, 
which is also premised on the fact that public finance represents between 10 and 15% of the global investment. So if we, we manage uh, to, to shift a portion of this, of this um, financing towards um, a sustainable development agenda, towards the politics of sustainability, uh, then the, the impact is likely to be significant. Thank you. And uh, you ended by talking about how we should uh, shift some of the finance. And uh, the report, in fact, talks about capitalizing on this moment that we find ourselves in, on the strategic spillover of the Indo-Pacific and utilizing it for development. Melinda, I'd like to turn to you and, uh, and get the perspective from the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. Um, what are the development priorities and what are the public financing gaps that you see? Brilliant, thank you. And it's a really, um, thank you for inviting me to speak on the panel. And it's a good opportunity to, to set out um, a little bit more about the UK perspective. So as many of you will, will know, um, the UK merged its development organisation, DFID, with um, the Foreign Office a couple of years ago. And we really used that as a moment to have a strategic rethink on international development policy in the round with the fundamental question of... Um, how do we use development spend and development policy more broadly in a way that is complementary to and supports our wider foreign policy and international objectives, whether that be economic issues, trade issues, technology, partnerships, climate change, health? What does an integrated offer look like in this, in this space? And um, we've been thinking hard about that, and we will bring forward a new international development strategy in the middle of, in the middle of May, um, I can tell you that um, sort of central to that are, are five key priorities, um, international investment, resilient investment, supporting countries to get the economic investment that they need for their economic and sustainable transitions is key, humanitarian support, global health security, um, education, particularly girls' education, and of course, climate change and the environment are all going to be front and centre. And... Um, Alongside that, we will have, as the UK, a sort of full suite of uh, positions, whether it be on security or international trade or international technology. And I mention all of that because I think it's important when we talk about the Indo-Pacific. So what we really want to do to be successful is make sure that we're using our development offer as a key flank of our foreign policy objectives here too. And for all the reasons that people have been talking about um, on this panel and, and in plenary, you know, the Indo what happens in the Indo-Pacific region is, is so crucial for the future of the world in many respects, whether it is the security pillar, the economic growth pillar, or the climate change and environment and sustainability pillar. And that's really clear. So we need to make sure that our offer, our finance, and our policies are, are working in tune with that. And across this region, I think, you know, what we would say is there are some incredible opportunities, actually. And if you look at what needs to happen in the energy transition space, in the biodiversity protection space, but also the economic growth and transformation space from energy access all the way through to energy supply. You know, the potential for combined investment, public and private, for um, a broad range of stakeholder engagement, and to really make sure that doing all of that tackles poverty and deliver the SDGs is an incredibly exciting opportunity in this region. Of course, there are also challenges, humanitarian, governance, you know, all the things that we know from our experience of international development around the world, small island developing states, 
the, the, what we've heard about um, the plight of, of SIDS in terms of ocean rise are all critical challenges that we need to make sure our grant money is focused on. But we really want to make sure it's the combination of helping the region be um, sort of the, the transformed, economically, sustainably resilient region it wants to be, working with stakeholders to make sure that regional connectivity plays a role, digital plays a role, identity plays a role, and all of that wrapped together in a coherent foreign policy that is um, that savvy for the region's concerns over the medium term and ambition um, is very much at the heart of what we want to do. Thanks, Melinda. Um, Javier, we just heard from Melinda on what are uh, the immediate priorities. If you were to tell us um, your view of a cooperation strategy in the Indo-Pacific from a development perspective and uh, the view from Europe, uh, what would you say? Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Rayali. It's a pleasure to be here, Minister, colleagues, and ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I, I, will, I will address the, the question, uh, uh, and at the same time being, being the, the, the first Spaniard, I think, to, to speak in uh, during this, this conference on, in Raisina, I, I feel I'm being the political director in charge of Eastern Europe. I, I will also address how the conflict in Ukraine has impacted in, in our view on, on these issues. I'm, I'm an economist by, by training, and I'm sure you, most of you have already heard that economists are not very good in forecasting, particularly when it's forecasting the future. And uh, I think that has come to my mind very much and very often in the last few months. Three months ago, when we were discussing inside the ministry what were our plans for 2023 and how, what were our priorities, our discussion was basically based on how we would handle the recovery from the COVID pandemic, how we would uh, increase our cooperation uh, or reinforce our cooperation on global issues in the Indo-Pacific, given a growing uh, a competitive environment, but how we could you know, find common ground and work on, issue, on issuing common challenges like climate change, as the minister has mentioned before, biodiversity, health issues, terrorism or addressing the food insecurity that has been resulted actually from, from, from the COVID pandemic. Uh, internally, and, and I, I can uh, uh, elaborate on that, we were uh, planning a, a, a new cooperation law that gives a framework to our development cooperation policy. And within the European Union, we're discussing a lot on development finance, and I'm, I believe has addressed that also part, partially on how, well, how do we do uh, how do we use the development banks, basically, within the European Union, and also internally. And then the 24th of February happened, and everything changed. The illegal and unprovoked aggression of Russia to Ukraine has been a real game-changer in international relations. And it, not only because it sets, uh, it's a clear violation of international law and the international rules-based order that we all shared, probably in this room, not only because it creates a very dangerous precedent, not only in Europe, but in other areas of the world, including the Indo-Pacific, but also for the development consequences that is having all around the world. The recent forecast by the World Bank predict that the Ukrainian GDP will be cut by half this year. In Europe right now, we are having over 5 million refugees and there are 7 million internally displaced people in Ukraine. And Ukraine was a middle-income country, was a developing country before. But the consequences are not only happening in Europe, are happening also in the Pacific. The increase of food prices and commodities, the increase of fuel prices, 
which have been discussed in, this, in, the, in several debates, these days in Raisina, are affecting also the populations in this region. And most likely, and this has been also addressed in some, in some areas, the increase in inflation that is taking place in the United States, in Europe, is already causing an increase in interest rates that will have very profound impacts in many countries in the developing world, in the global south. Therefore, and I'll stop here because I'm getting too long, my conclusion right now is that probably the best development policy we can do in the short term is putting an end to this war as soon as possible. And in that sense, we are looking very much forward to working together with countries in the Pacific which has, who have a very important role to play. I'm sure that I'll have time to address more of our cooperation in the medium term in, nec in the next occasion. Thank you. Thank you, Javier. Um, Uduak, uh, I'd like to bring you in now. Africa, along with South Asia, faces some of the most critical development challenges of this century. In that context, what do you think of utilizing the Indo-Pacific framework for furthering the politics of development? Thank you. Um, I'll update my bio. Um, just to say that uh, the, um, I, I no longer run an NGO and that uh, changed this uh, month mm -hmm. and I've gone back to coaching and consulting, uh, running my own business. Um, I'd also like to justify my presence on this panel because typically um, Indo-Pacific strategies exclude Africa. And so when you saw me flipping through the uh, report, I was looking to see whether Africa was um, reflected there. I'm not sure that I did, but I'll have a closer look. Um, so, nine African countries um, uh, are, are part of the Indo-Pacific region. Um, Eastern African countries, I am from an East African country, Kenya, and the island countries, small island nations. Um, and you're quite right about uh, the need to strengthen African-Asian um, development. Um, and several informal alliances and forums uh, uh, exist, as well as more formal um, partnerships. Um, whether we're talking about um, Japan, TCAD, um, India's Africa uh, Summit, the Sino-African Summit. Um, but within the Indian uh, Indo-Pacific uh, context specifically, we have the Indian Ocean Commission, we have the Indian Ocean RIM uh, Association. But as... Um, we've been reflecting on throughout the Ricina Dialogue, we find ourselves at a critical point in global relations as a result of both COVID um, and the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you will recall that Africa uh, and Asia belong to the non-aligned movement, which um, for all intents and purposes exists only in name. But the moment that we find ourselves in seems to be calling for some sort of revitalization of that corporation. Whether you call it the non-aligned movement or whether you refer to the 2005 restating of Africa-Asian Corporation under the new Africa-Asia Development Corporation. Certainly the need for that um, exists. You saw it in the way that African countries voted, have voted on Russia. You know, the, the first vote saw outright condemna condemnation of, of um, the invasion. And the second vote at the uh, Human Rights Council, uh, Council saw quite an, a few abstentions, pointing to the tension on the continent um, about how to respond 
to this you know, global event. And so there is room for Africa and Asia to restate, revitalize, and reimagine their partnership. And I think that has to do with um, broadening the actors in these partnerships. Typically, they occur at the geopolitical level through summits. We don't see enough geoeconomic um, cooperation. If we do, it's one-sided. We don't see enough of the intellectual exchanges. We don't see enough of the civil society exchanges. We don't see enough cross-pollination. Um, but it seems to me, and I don't speak for the African Union, that there will be a strengthening of this um, um, of, of the partnership. My understanding is that the African Union will have a summit uh, next month uh, where security um, and developments around counterterrorism will be on the table. And so we will see more talk um, of renewed partnership, whether it's under the framework of non-alignment or new partnerships of, um, you know, around the global south. Thank you. Thank you, Udwak. Um, you have outlined the need for, um, for finding more immediate solutions. Uh, Aditya, um, national governments, of course, have prioritized the conversation on security framework when it comes to Indo-Pacific. But as we have seen with state governments, especially in the last couple of years, state governments like yours also, uh, being more directly accountable to the people for deliv delivering of development solutions. Do you feel that they will be at the forefront of this changing conversation? I think that is a very, very important conversation we've got to have around the world, especially when you have... Um, one of the things I noticed at COP26 also when we were there is apart from the national governments interacting with each other, you also had a lot of regional cooperation. You had a lot of regional bilaterals going on, regional governments meeting each other at forums, at general assemblies. I think that is very important today. Because when most national governments have a conversation or when they go to forums and meetings or even bilaterals, it's the most current topics that are being discussed, especially uh, currently with Ukraine or you know, with you know, other blips in or rather events in our current times. But what we've got to realize is the Indo-Pacific also is about the future. It's got a shared past. We've got a current tense that was really tense and we've got a shared future. But when we speak about the shared future, you've got to look at healthcare and how are we looking at healthcare because COVID has taught us a lot. So how do we come out of it collectively? How do we avoid future pandemics like this? What is our response going to be there uh, to that You know, as a shared response? So that is one because more or less economically we're moving ahead and at a speed that cannot be controlled by anyone or restricted by anyone. So that is one. But when we speak about development again, you know, for us as Maharashtra or for us as different regions around India and probably also, you know, the crescent right from India to East African nations, we're looking at cities growing rapidly. We're looking at populations growing rapidly. We're looking at the need and urge for development on the high. And when we look at this, how short term is a development or how long term is a development? I think that is something we've got to really think about. Uh, when we have reports like, and congratulations to the AFD for this report, but when we have reports about you know, partnering for finances with private banks or with banks that are national, with agencies, with think tanks, 
we've also got to think about what are we looking at in terms of the next 50 years the next 100 years is our development in terms of infrastructure in terms of social uh, development in terms of socio economic political development in terms of societal development how sustainable is it is it going to last us for the next century because most of the thought process today is a very urgent thought process is about today it's not about the tomorrow and if we have forums if we have think tanks that are thinking about tomorrow we've got to look at our growing populations we've got to look at the changing requirements of the population uh, the strata the socio economic strata that the population comes from and where it is heading towards uh, the requirements of energy security the requirements of food security healthcare um, you know so all of these i think it's very very crucial for us to also have interregional dialogues for us where we're looking at especially when we as india also having different regions and states having huge populations so we've got to have an inward and outward outlook we've got to have more connectivity with the world uh, a thought process that is more global as you know as the popular term because finally it's going to be the regional governments that are going to be implementing it is it practical enough to be implementing it in terms of the practical practicality of is it possible today is it economically possible today is it socially acceptable for us these are some of the conversations if we can have with our own national governments and with governments around the world it's surely going to help the indo pacific to move ahead so since we are looking at the indo pacific of the future um philip i would like to ask you uh, i know that the report has outlined some ways forward for regional cooperation regional frameworks more of regional banks and conferences can you share with us um on what some of those solutions could be um thank you uh, sunaina and um uh, wish uh, bon appetit to all participants for us sitting on the fasting side of the conference it's a pleasure a with a sense of jealousy <laughs> um i think uh, um, among the the um the, the avenues for possible future cooperation they certainly like was um, mentioned by uh, aditya uh, cooperation uh, between local governments I think this is this is very important for instance in the OECD 70% of public investment takes place at at the level of local governments be they provinces uh, departments and and cities so that that that's um, uh, uh, an important element and also cooperation between uh, public entities um, let me mention here uh, something that we about to to launch uh, cooperation between national parks uh, based on the experience that I've just gained in um, in Assam Uh, we are about to launch with the uh, support of the French uh, forestry uh, administration uh, a cooperation that will also integrate national parks from other uh, countries and regions of the of the uh, Indo-Pacific especially the um, eastern coast of um, of, of Africa so this sort of cooperation among practitioners which is the essence also of the work that public development development banks uh, are trying to 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 promote are certainly a, um, an avenue which uh, needs to be to be explored uh, simply because work among practitioners is is more likely to produce the sort of uh, responses uh, which are um, co- consistent with what the demand is and and our cooperation is is basically uh, and fundamentally um, demand driven um but one can think of other example um connectivity on on um blue economy uh fisheries and uh, ports uh, sustainable ports there are lots of areas in which uh, the indo pacific 
uh, either is already or could become um, uh, a global laboratory of new forms, new modalities of cooperation. Thank you. And uh, we do expect our audience to work for their lunch. We will be opening it out uh, in about 15-20 minutes to audience questions and we would really want you to participate in this discussion. Uh, Melinda, I know that this is something that does interest you. The Indo-Pacific has, of course, uh, prioritized infrastructural partnerships and connectivity partnerships, which are posited as, uh, as the opposite of the China model. Um, how do you think that projects like the EU's Global Gateway Project, the United States Blue Dot Network, provide a sustainable development model? So I think this is a, a really key question for everyone who's interested in understanding sustainable development in any region, let alone the Indo-Pacific. This sort of question about one of the driving questions for the panel, what is the sort of, how do we think about China's fast funding um, in contrast to the West sort of slower funding, high quality offer. And I think what's really important to start this conversation off is um, the fact that investment, any investment is good for growth, right? I mean, we know that um, from history and we know that in practice. Um, but I think what's equally important to say is that that investment needs to be sustainable. It needs to support rather than undermine good governance, sound economic decision-making, transparency. And it needs to be done in a way which is fundamentally part of the vision of uh, the long-term vision that I think we've had really well articulated by Aditi and others um, for that country in question. And what we've seen, you know, this is also very true um, as the history and continents in, in, in Africa and parts of this region too, that the Chinese models offer some of that, but it does not offer all of that. Um, Chinese lending is sort of notoriously no strings attached, but actually if you look into it, there are, there are downsides, there are strings attached. Um, you know, particularly when it comes to first loss, if the government is unable to repay, particularly in terms of transparency, particularly in terms of the debt burden that they place, can, it can place, if not part of a sound economic management framework. So it's absolutely imperative um, two things. Firstly, that, um, I mean, we sort of call it funding from the West, but actually I don't really like that term. I mean, I think what, we're, what, we're, what we need to drive at is um, an economic investment model that is driven by investors who have a long-term interest in sound economic management and the sustainability of economic growth in that country into sort of the infrastructure that will drive economic transformation in a way that creates jobs tackles climate change, avoids environmental degradation, and reduces poverty. Now, that is absolutely feasible as long as um, governments have viable plans, political will is in place to undertake the economic and governance reforms that are necessary for a conducive investment environment, and that investors, particularly, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, but a lot of sort of Western donors, as it were, have bilateral models, and that's in contrast to China, which can operate at scale over a medium-term time horizon. But our bilateral models need aggregating into something that is more than the sum of its parts. And we saw that conversation, and we saw those coalitions come together time and again at the COP. They came together at the Glasgow COP. But, you know, they need to come together and really sort of work together on what it will take to provide long-term, honest, reliable investment at the right price and on the right terms. And for sure, financial innovation amongst those groups is a critical part of that. Um, risk sharing, risk pooling, guarantee mechanisms are, are a fundamental part of that. But you know, with that sort of 
uh, those coalitions of financiers who are able to offer um, transparent, sustained, long-term investment supporting countries' economic and resilience transitions is absolutely key. But the other part of it, and I really want to emphasize this, is that they need to be part and parcel of, and many governments have them in the form of their NDCs, but they need to become investable, bankable propositions that work for the medium term. And it's that ecosystem coming together that will support resilient economic transitions. And that ecosystem will, I think, over time, see many countries turn towards better sources of funding and away from the short-term, supposedly no-strings-attached China offer that we see inherent in the, in the Belt and Road Initiative. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.